Welcome to this episode of Profess Hers, a podcast about movies, music, history, pop culture, current events, and literature, all discussed through the perspective of women's issues and feminism. I'm Allegra, and we are going to talk about some pretty memorable scandals of the 90s today. And I think for me, the most memorable, probably because of how old I was, was definitely the O.J. Simpson trial. What do you remember? I remember my mom picking me up from middle school and basically every day telling me what had happened. Like she listened to <laughs> like she listened to NPR the news and NPR and then picked me up and gave me like a watered down update, I'm sure, because she didn't like right. tell me details of murder. Because you were in middle school. Yeah. But it was definitely something that was very I don't know, everybody was talking about it. So I'm Misty. And I guess the scandal I remember most from the 90s, which we're going to talk about today, is the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Yeah. I think my parents didn't really want us to pay very much attention to that. Well, that's why I remember it is because we always would watch the news together as a family. And my parents were so upset that we couldn't be watching the news. Yeah. My parents were doubly upset because they took me to meet Bill Clinton when I was oh, a, no. when I was a small child. <laughs> uh, and so I think it was like, we voted for him. Oh, man. So, yeah. But... It kind of does seem in so many ways that we are repeating the 90s. Like, word for word. Really seriously. Same script. Like, you pretend like we are moving forward as a culture. We pretend like women are really coming close to equality, but not really. Uh, presidential sex scandals. and like Supreme you s- Court sex scandals. <laughs> and Yeah, yes. I mean, the Supreme Court testimony was memorable uh but you said last time that like the topsoil culture Mm -hmm. is women empowerment right girl power spice girl feminism and and then the real culture was walk this very fine line well i think part of what's happening there is that there's a very specific cultural script that women and girls were told to stick to yeah and so, yeah, we're going to fluff it up and make it seem like it's empowering. And we'll put some pink stickers on it. Right. Some Lisa Frank pink stickers. <laughs> but you still have to choose which which one of those three girls from Saved by the Bell are right. you. Or which one of those three friends And if you're not you. one of them, we're going to knock you down. Exactly. And it's, so it's the same now, right? The, the narrative that you hear most is me too and women empowerment and things are changing. We have more women in office, but in reality, discrimination and sexual harassment, sexual harassment and expectations for women are really regressive. The more women who assume power, the more powers taken away from them through social scripts and popular culture and basically hostility toward women or women being commodified. Well, and if not regressive, then stagnant. Yeah. Which feels regressive. Yeah. If other things are progressing and then this one thing is not. And if you're promising us... Right, rising expectations. One thing and... A completely different thing. Slapping us in the face. Yeah, yeah. So... Again, the the trailblazing women of the 90s taken down by this sexist social structure. We're going to talk about some really important women today, mostly focused on public policy, government, and legal issues. But I do want to say that we're not going to talk about them, but I feel like Ricky Lake and Shannon Doherty and Sally Jesse Raphael, all of these women are also misremembered from the 90s. Do you have strong memories of these women? I... Well, I didn't know who Shannon Doherty was, so I'm not even going to lie about that one. You did not. (laughs) Um, I remember the glasses from Sally Jesse Raphael. Yeah. And Ricky Lake, I remember being as kind of like a younger, fun talk show host, but I don't really know anything about her. Yeah, and the cool thing about Ricky Lake was she and Oprah were really the only two women you saw consistently who didn't fit body type expectations. Mm -hmm. And so they were trailblazing and important in that way. But- you know, Ricky Lake also became kind of a popular culture punchline. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, of course, they had Shannon Doherty, We Hate You Clubs. <laughs> I didn't know about that, but apparently, yes. 
I was never a member of, of those Well, clubs. that's good. Yeah. That's something you can put on your resume there. Yeah. Did so, not join. So I guess those are our honorable mentions for Misremembered Women of the 90s. And so the other thing we should say before we start is that we are going to talk about Monica Lewinsky. And Anita Hill. And Anita Hill. And we are going to talk about the trial of O.J. Simpson. So all of those stories are going to include things that might make people uncomfortable. Yeah, there's some definite trauma in all of those stories. All of them. In different ways. Yeah. So, But just be prepared. It's coming. It is. So the first person I want to talk about is Surgeon General Joycelyn Elders. And we might not remember her the same way we remember the other women, but her reputation was, and she was treated basically the same way as these other women. She was a physician. She was a pediatric endocrinologist, which I'm not exactly sure what that is, but it sounds super complicated and like you need to be really yes. smart to do that job. Mm-hmm. So she was born in Arkansas to a poor family. She was the eldest of eight children. She went to the University of Arkansas medical degree. She was the director of the Arkansas Department of Health. She was the first African-American woman in the state to hold that position in Arkansas. She reduced teen pregnancy in Arkansas. by Which in- was epidemic, by the way, yes. in the late 80s, early 90s. And she increased the availability of birth control, counseling, and sex education at school-based clinics. And also gave a tenfold increase to early childhood screenings from 1988 to 1992. And a 24% rise in the immunization rate for two-year-olds. Did you also say she's an Army vet? Because she's also an Army vet. Yeah. Expanded the availability of HIV testing, breast cancer screenings, better hospice care. She did a lot of great things for Arkansas. She was a voice for the African-American community. She worked with teenage mothers. Um, And so when Bill Clinton became president, he made her Surgeon General. Mm -hmm. And which in and of itself was a groundbreaking selection. Yeah. And the American Medical Association passed a resolution that said all Surgeon Generals should be actual physicians. Which gave her the impression that the American Medical Association assumed she wasn't a doctor. Right. Even though they knew Mm -hmm. nothing about her. People asked her whether she felt more oppressed as a woman or as a person of color. And she would never answer that question. She always just said that she is who she is because she is a black woman. So she had that intersectional identity and she refused to say black people have it harder, women have it harder. It's not a competition. It's about identity. Well, and she also said you can't slice it. Yeah. Like, I can't be just black or just a woman. I am a black woman. Yeah. She was the first black Surgeon General and the second female Surgeon General. Mm -hmm. And she got in trouble a lot as Surgeon General, even though she had all all of this experience and all of these proven results that her ideas worked and that she could help people, especially children and the elderly and, of course, people who are ill because she's the Surgeon General. She advocated for sex ed. Because Comprehensive she, sex ed. Because she saw its results work in Arkansas. And, and just with this in historical context, we're coming out of the 80s with the rise of the religious right. Yes. So, and we're starting, we are talking about... I don't even know the best way to say this, but AIDS was a huge crisis and Uh, epidemic. Epidemic. And it had been ignored completely by Ronald Reagan's administration. Yes. So she took that very seriously. One thing that she said was that legalizing drugs might help reduce crime and that the idea should be studied. She didn't say, hey, we should legalize all the drugs. Yeah, and she actually said... Study it for at least two decades. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's an important thing, right? She's not saying let's do a one-year study and just run forward. Right. She's saying let's do an academic, legitimate study and let's learn from this, which is what we want doctors to do, right? Right. But no. (laughs) False. So she knew, obviously, that what all empirical evidence suggests, safe sex and sex, comprehensive sex education prevents disease and unwanted pregnancy. But she was called the condom queen. By Rush Limbaugh. And Which, why are we taking anything that man says seriously? But, but because the things he said, they trickle out into the culture. Yes. And if it's a catchy enough pejorative nickname, people will use it. When 
And he got a lot of he got a lot of oh, culture yeah. credit in the nineties. He started a lot of terrible nicknames, but Condom Queen though, doesn't that just sound out like she's like standing outside of like elementary schools just like passing them out? I, to kids? You know what? I bet she would stand <laughs> outside of school. Maybe not elementary. Not schools. elementary. Yeah. She had like a bowl of condoms on her desk as Surgeon General, and she didn't care that Rush Limbaugh or anybody else called her the condom queen as long as the message was getting to the people who needed to hear it. She was asked on World AIDS Day in 1994, World AIDS Day is December 1st, by the way, uh, about whether masturbation education could limit the spread of HIV and AIDS. So somebody asked her that question. She didn't just pull the topic out of the air. And she says, masturbation is something that's part of human sexuality, and it's part of something that perhaps should be taught but we're not taught our children, but we're not teaching our children the basics. We have tried ignorance for a very long time, and it's time we get education. Mm-hmm. So she said, masturbation is part of human sexuality. It's part of something that perhaps should be taught. She did clarify later, she's not saying teach them how to do it. Just teach them that it's normal. Yes. So that right. it's removing shame. Right. It wasn't a how-to guide. I just want to clarify. Yeah. We've, we haven't taught them the basics. We tried ignorance. It's time we try education. That's what she said. Right. So we, she said there's nothing wrong with it and we need better sex education. And basically all of the reports from that were that she wanted to teach children how to masturbate. Right. Because that's exactly what she said. So, of course, she's mocked by every late night comedian um, and the narrative becomes that she's too sexual. And most of the women we're going to talk about are criticized because they're too sexy or not sexy enough. And there is, again, historically this context for African-American women going back to slavery. Yes. Of them being over sexualized. Yes. And so you can't divorce what's happening in the 1990s from that historical background as much as you would like to. Yes. And it was it kind of made it clear that like when women talk about sex, it's ridiculous. But mm-hmm. men can make basically endless dirty jokes. And so the jokes that people were making about her were fine. Were far worse, right, in terms of their crudeness than anything she said. But she was still criticized as being crude. Yes. The truth is absence only sex education does not prevent does spread not of disease. Work. Teenagers are shamed about having entirely healthy, normal feelings. Mm -hmm. That doesn't help anything. So she resigned after... Well, I want to talk about one more thing before she resigns. All right, so there's one more thing she did that just like lit the religious ride on fire and they hated her for this. Uh, That's not really hard to do. It's really easy to tip some of them off, but this is a big deal. Uh, She said that abortion foes needed to, quote, get over their love affair with the fetus, end quote. (laughs) Yeah. So she's basically trying to say there that she's seeing what's happening to these children later. And, like, let's worry about the children. Right. Childhood health. Teen pregnancies. All of these other things that we actually can affect right now. Right. Let's let's get away from this fetus conversation. And this is uh, back when she's still in Arkansas. So this was known. Yeah. It wasn't. Her stances were never unclear. Yeah. So I just want to make that really clear when we talk about what's going to happen to her later. It's not like Bill Clinton was surprised. Right. And I mean, he saw the good she did. Mm-hmm. And you sometimes have to be able to almost court controversy if you're going to get things done, especially in a political Right, the status quo doesn't change anything. And being very quiet about things doesn't change things. So she was very happy to be loud and to be known as the condom queen, even though it is completely dehumanizing and ridiculous. Right. Um, But she resigned. And she resigned because there was a scandal about her supposedly wanting to teach children to masturbate. And the White House made it very, very clear that her resignation wasn't voluntary. Right. She's still referred to as the condom queen. And I just want to say that both her predecessor, the the previous Surgeon General, and her successor, the next Surgeon General, both 
discussed masturbation. Right. Even in similar contexts, masturbation education is a way to prevent the spread of dis- or help prevent the spread of disease, specifically related to HIV and AIDS. No jokes, no problems. You might be surprised to know that both of those Surgeon Generals were, guess what? Not female? That's right. They were men. I know you're shocked. I'm, I'm just amazed. So, Somebody get my smelling salts. Yeah. Well, don't let your uterus fall out. <laughs> of course, we had we had a decade with, let's say, book-ending sex scandals. That maybe is the nicest way to say that. <laughs> so think of this climate, bad sex education, right? Shame about perfectly natural feelings, uh, lots of violence, lots of sexually transmitted diseases. A backlash from the free love movement of the 70s. Yes. And sex scandals become something that people talk about pretty much every day in the 90s. Which is interesting for how repressive the culture is. Because, you know, this is not the first time in our history that we've had sex scandals. Of course. It's not even the first time a president, Allegra, has had an affair. Right. In the White House. I mean, I... Yeah. I mean, I honestly can only name a handful of presidents that didn't have affairs. Well, they probably still had them. You just, we haven't found the evidence. You just don't know about <laughs> it. So, uh, this isn't new. It's just the way that we were shocked by it was new. Yeah. And so Allison Yara, the author of 90s Bitch, called this the Goldilocks conundrum of female sexuality. There's only too hot or too cold and no such thing as just, just right. right. And... Monica Lewinsky, who was the sex, who was part of this sex scandal story from the end of the decade, right. was blamed for not guarding herself against sex. Was blamed for enjoying sex. She was hated for not being what we would say typically attractive. My favorite thing that she got criticized for was not respecting marriage vows. When she hadn't taken any. Right. She hadn't she hadn't taken any. Some you know, she was hated because she wasn't super thin. Mm-hmm. She was considered to be too ambitious for her own good and she was trying to get too much. So she was too hot, too sexy. If we think about that Goldilocks conundrum. Okay. Anita Hill, in contrast, because she reported sexual harassment. Right. She couldn't take a joke. <laughs> Right, that was the cultural narrative. Oh I am my god, 100% not saying that. Anita Hill was portrayed as stiff, frigid, unavailable, and a lot of people are referred to her as a scorned woman out for revenge, so she's too cold. But in both cases, we end up culturally in the narrative, in the news, and now looking back 20 years later, 30 years later in Anita Hill's case, basically blaming women for powerful men's bad behavior, and both of those men stayed in power. Right. There were few consequences for them. They literally... I'm not going to say no consequences. Sure. But few consequences. They literally stayed in power. They kept their... Well, in Clarence Thomas's case, he got the job. In Bill Clinton's case, he kept his job. And when we talk about those two people, we might talk about these scandals, but chances are we talk about other things, right? We talk about Clarence Thomas's Supreme Court decisions or the fact that he never talks during Supreme Court hearings. We talk about lots of things related to Bill Clinton's presidency, but the only things we say about Anita Hill and Monica Lewinsky are related to these scandals. So in preparation for today, I did something very stupid. Okay. I did you read internet comments because that's the stupidest thing. You no, can do. I think I might have done something worse than that. Okay, I went back and watched parts of the Anita Hill questioning. That is worse than reading internet comments. I don't know how she didn't just start throwing things. Because at some point, I probably would have. She did amazing, by the way. So, just for those who don't know who she is or what we're talking about. She was a basically a government employee who testified before the United States Senate about her former boss sexually harassing her. And, Ar- 
Yeah, go ahead. Arguing that this made him unfit for a job on the Supreme Court. But the senators mostly humiliated and mocked her. Yes. And the media mostly amplified the scolding from the Senate. Mm -hmm. And she is, the, the quote I have is, a little bit nutty and a little bit slutty. So before we get too far into the case and what they said to her. Yeah. I want to tell you just a little bit about her childhood. Okay. Because I do think this is important. Okay. She grows up in Lone Tree, Oklahoma. She is one of 13 children. Her family doesn't have a lot of money, but they do really, really value education. And she's raised in the Baptist faith. I think all of that is very important because later she's going to be asked questions like, why didn't you say something? Why didn't you come forward before now? And again, kind of like we talked about with Anna Nicole Smith, Mm -hmm. if you come from almost nothing Mm -hmm. and you've, quote unquote, made it. Right. And a government job working for an important. Yeah. You might not want to rock the boat. Yeah. And the other thing is, it's it's not even that she doesn't want to rock the boat. It's that she doesn't have any social capital. She has basically doesn't have the privilege of having a fallback plan. If she complains and or makes a complaint and loses her job, then she doesn't have the option of just going out and getting another job. Exactly, It could basically be ruinous to her life. And people have to recognize that a lot of times when people choose to sexually harass women, they purposefully choose women who don't have privilege and power. Exactly. Because they know those women won't say anything. Or if they do say anything, who's going to believe them? Exactly. So Clarence Thomas started asking her out at work. She worked for him and pressured her when she refused. She called him arrogant and said he thought his position entitled him to personal as well as professional access to his staff. So her impression of him was that he thought, you work for me, you do whatever I want you to do, or I have I have the right to do whatever I want with you. She... In her recollection, the more she rebuffed him, the more vulgar he became. He was starting to basically talk about sex acts and talk about things that he'd seen in pornographic movies. Yes. He talked about women having sex with animals. And she was absolutely certain that he did this to minimize her. She said, I was extremely uncomfortable talking about sex with him at all particularly in such a graphic way, and I told him repeatedly that I didn't want to talk about these kinds of things. I would also try to change the subject. I sense that my discomfort with his discussions only urged him on, as though my reaction of feeling ill at ease and vulnerable was exactly what he wanted. She just wanted it to stop. She wasn't interested in taking him down. She just wanted a safe place to work. Imagine that, Allegra. I don't I don't know. That's such a high I mean, expectation. You're asking for so much. I mean, basically every time she thought about going to work, she got nervous. Yeah, of course. So she told a friend about what was happening, and her friend said, You should try changing your perfume. That was the advice that she got. Wow. And it's who know? I mean, there was no script for how to navigate these things. I mean, in the in the in the 80s when this was happening to her, there was absolutely no way to know how to navigate these concerns. Right. We there wasn't experience, there wasn't conversation publicly about what to do or what happens. And so that was the best advice that she got. So in 1982, Clarence Thomas started was, I'm sorry, I laughed, was asked to run the EEOC. So he's asked by Ronald Reagan to run the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Perfect choice. And she chose to continue working for him. So she went from one government office to another with him. And she said that was just a matter of job security. If she went with him, she was guaranteed the job. Mm -hmm. But he couldn't keep her in her old position if she didn't go with him. And she would be reliant on him for recommendations if she wanted to apply for other jobs. So it was a matter of job security. Right. And at that point, she said the harassment had kind of stopped. And she 
felt safe enough to think, okay, I can go to this job. It'll be a fresh start. This is my best opportunity to continue my career. So she moved with him to the EEOC. and Which is what she's going to get criticized for really heavily later. Yes. And it happened again. Right. It and didn't stop. He talked about her hair, her body, whether her outfit made her look sexy. Uh, she said that it was basically the EEOC's definition of workplace sexual harassment. Right. And he was in charge of the EEOC. Right. So, so who what do you is complain she, to? What is she going to do? As we know, most women don't report sexual harassment at work. Most of the time, women just hope that it stops. A lot of the time, women think they need to change their own behavior in order to get it to stop. Right. When it doesn't stop, lots of women change their jobs. But there is the matter of financial security. And if you are interested in a government career, you probably don't have the opportunity to just flee from a job right. where the head of the EEOC can challenge your job prospects. Exactly. So, I mean, this is a federal system and everyone knows everyone. Right. So if she gets this reputation of being difficult, right. which is a word we apply to women, yes. difficult, who else is going to hire her? Right. And so in 1983, she did quit working for Clarence Thomas and she kind of just tried to let it go. Yeah. She got a different job. She moved on with her life. She moved away from him. And then he got nominated for the Supreme Court. Right. And she felt like what he did made him unfit to serve. Yes. So she testified. Well, first, she talked to senators on the phone. Mm -hmm. And she wrote a four-page statement Yes, which you can find a transcript of if you're interested. They told her that she, her statement would remain private. <laughs> and like and I said, it's on the internet. It's It was shared with everyone on the Judiciary Committee and all of their staffs. And so on October 6, 1991, a reporter published her allegation. And so, of course, now she's living in Oklahoma and she is swamped by requests for comment by the media. Right. And at that point, the Judiciary Committee had basically finished its confirmation hearings and they didn't really want to bring up the sexual harassment accusations. And Joe Biden, who was the leader of this committee, fought against even listening to Anita Hill testify. Yes. Does this sound familiar to oh, you? Oh, yes. Okay. So I do want to say that it is like an image that people remember. Her in the blue power suit. Sitting by herself. Yes. Looking up yes. at the An all-white, all-male. Judiciary Committee. All men. Asking her these horrific question. I do know that Strom Thurmond said, referred to her testimony as the rantings of a disgruntled employee who has reduced herself to lying. There's so much I want to talk about with what they <laughs> asked her. So it is a it is an image. And of course, it's an image that's very, very similar to Christine Blasey Ford testifying before the same committee, obviously with different members. Yes. Well, some. <laughs> Just a few years ago. She was asked if she was a scorned woman. Okay, so we're not going to go through the whole eight-hour testimony here. That's probably a good choice. But I, I want to hit some lowlights because these are not highlights. So Senator Arlen Specter asked her if she, uh, sorry, told her that discussing large breasts in the workplace was fairly common. That that in and of itself did not count as harassment. He said this is a word we use all the time. Yeah. All the time. Howell Heflin, in trying to, said, in trying to determine whether you are telling falsehoods or not, I have got to determine what your motivation might be. Are you a scorned woman? And then he further says, are you a zealot civil rights activist? What, what kind of question is that? Do you have a militant attitude in the area of civil rights? Do you have a martyr complex? She said, no, I don't. And then she laughed. Because it's ridiculous. Insane. And he said, well, do you see that coming out of this, you can be a hero in the civil rights movement? And she said, I don't like all of the attention that I'm getting. 
Even if I like the attention, I would not lie to get attention. Spectre goes on later to ask her about that she basically he said you inferred yes but he never specifically asked you to watch pornography with him he never said let's go to my apartment and watch films or go to my house and watch films and anita hill said but he did say you ought to see this material right i mean all of these questions are just insane so basically saying like he made a comment, but you inferred you it. You took it the wrong way. Yes. You Your took little it female the wrong brain. way. Um, Patrick Lee, he's going to ask her what she has to gain by coming here. If anybody has promised her anything. What, what would she have to gain? What on earth would she have to gain? I don't, I don't know. And then, of course, there's a whole line of questioning about... Why didn't you come forward earlier? Right. And if it was so bad... Why did you follow him to your next, to the second job? And these are very common tactics. Of course. Used to discredit women and harassment victims is the right word, I guess. Well, and it also just shows the complete imbalance of power. Yeah. Because I guarantee you, if this had happened to any of these men's wives, they would have had a completely different point of view on it. Or their daughters, completely different point of view. But they're so blind to her being a person that they cannot even imagine and be Mm -hmm. empathetic towards it. Mm -hmm. And in their minds, she is a threat to their political progress. Well, if Arlen Specter is running around his Senate office all the time talking about large breasts, and that's something that he says he uses, what, fairly commonly? Yes. Yeah, he might have some concerns about sexual harassment. Mm Mm-hmm. And they cra- they came up with this whole scorned woman theory oh, yeah. about him leading her on and her wanting more and why she followed him to a different jobs. And essentially, if you want to know why she didn't come forward earlier, this right here is why. This, the way that the men responded to and behaved toward her is why she didn't come forward earlier. There's also one other reason. Now, this isn't true for Anita Hill, because she worked at the EEOC. Yeah. But the year after this was aired, complaints to the EEOC about sexual harassment went up 50%. Mm-hmm. Women were calling in going, you mean that's illegal? Yep. My boss can't say that to me? Yeah. So Anita Hill knew, because she worked there, but other women had no idea that this was something that they had a right not to experience at their workplace. How sad is that? Yeah, and the other thing is that people criticized her because her testimony had sullied the Senate halls with this sex talk. John Kennedy was in the Senate. I just want to make that clear. (laughs) Well, I mean, we're talking about a man's behavior, and the criticism is that the woman's descriptions of it ruined the reputation of the Senate. The hallowed halls, yeah. Yeah. So... They, they had to say the word penis, Allegra. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. But but they admit to saying large breasts commonly. in the workplace. Commonly. commonly. So uh, in response, she was punished for being associated with sex and sexual harassment. She was overwhelmed by death threats, threats of sexual violence, bomb threats, she would get vile packages in the mail. She changed her phone number all the time, but always got really horrific voicemails. And people just really felt free to leave the most cruel and revolting messages for her. Right. And people attacked her appearance, mm-hmm. right? And said, Clarence Thomas, this is a joke that Chris Rock made. Clarence Thomas could have picked a much better looking woman to blow his career on. So she, again, she's not attractive enough. She didn't report it soon enough. She didn't behave exactly the way we want a sexual harassment victim to behave. And so she is very easy to marginalize, dehumanize, ignore. And she was seen as being frigid because Mm -hmm. she didn't, I guess, cave to the pressure. And she didn't accept that kind of behavior as acceptable. So... In the last few weeks, she's been, well, I guess really a few months, she's been back in the news. She 
came back into the news really when the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings were happening because people were like, tell us what the experience was like for you looking back, how much has changed, how much is exactly the same. And really her answer was everything's the same. And then there was a documentary, Mm -hmm. which she's a college professor. And she said one of the reasons that she did the documentary was her students at some point stopped knowing who she was. She was I mean, this is a good thing. She was just Professor Hill. Right. But they're losing all that historical context of what her case mm-hmm. meant for our nation. Right. And then with Joe Biden running for president. Well, there's also an HBO movie. Oh, I didn't know about that one. Um, starring a, Carrie, uh, Carrie Washington. A dramatic reenactment kind of thing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Carrie Washington was, played Anita Hill. In the HBO uh, movie, and that came out in the last couple of years as well. So, Joe. But yes, now Joe Biden is running for president. And so in April, he called her and he wanted to kind of like smooth this over. No, he wanted it to go away. Yeah, that's the other way to say it. Um, so he said that he had regret for what she endured, making no ownership, apology, really. It's unfortunate that that thing that was completely out of my control happened to you. But, yeah. Even though I was the chair of the committee. Indefensible. I agree. She's not having it. She uh, says that she doesn't feel like she received an apology. She didn't receive an apology. She didn't. Yeah. And uh, that she's not prepared to be an advocate or a spokesperson for his campaign. Which, can you blame her? No. No. So let's talk about the other sex scandal. Whew. Okay. We're we're going to uh I don't know. Go for it. <laughs> we're not we're not going to go all the way into this story. But in 1995, Monica Lewinsky started an internship in the White House. She had just turned 22 years old. Yes. The relationship however you want to define it, that she had with President Clinton spanned more than two years and ended in May 1997 and consisted of approximately 20 meetings mm-hmm. and lots and lots of lengthy late-night phone calls, mm-hmm. all of the phone calls initiated by the president. Monica now says that she fell in love with him as mm-hmm. her boss. Mm-hmm. So that's how she categorizes this relationship. Just I want to put that out there. She does see this as like it was a consensual relationship relationship, and that she was in love with him, though she does acknowledge there was a power dynamic there. Of course. So she was always described in very, I don't know, salacious terms. Yes. Saucy. People talked about her low-cut blouses or her thigh-high skirts. And... Really, all of our coverage of her is focused on stereotypes, right? She's dumb. She's entitled. She's fat. Newsweek said it's doubtful that Lewinsky played hard to get. Whoa. Former boyfriends of hers emerged. So let me just ask you, are any of your former boyfriends good, reliable sources of objective information about you? In my case, yes, but I understand that that's unusual. <laughs> Former boy, like, why would we say, let's go talk to all of her ex-boyfriends right. to get real information? Former boyfriends emerged to basically bash her publicly. Um, somebody who she had a relationship with previously called a press conference on his own lawn with the oh my sole gosh. purpose of disparaging her. I kind of remember that now. Yes. So she was often referred to as the Clinton bimbo, mm-hmm. and that's a common word used to marginalize and discredit women. And uh, <laughs> somebody said as early as 1998, I think that what people are most outraged about is the way she looks, right? I mean, the thing I keep hearing over and over again is that Monica Lewinsky isn't that pretty. Right, because if the president's going to have an affair, it should be with like a Marilyn Monroe. Maureen Dowd of the New York Times called her the girl who was too tubby to be in the high school in crowd. Oh. Yeah. That's so sad. I know. I mean, I knew all this, but when you hear it laid out again, it just, it re-breaks your heart. Yeah. I mean, Jake Tapper called her chubby and cute. 
said, I have two words for people who think that sex burns calories. Monica Lewinsky. Yeah, that was from Jay Leno. And he just was relentless. It was easy, cheap jokes. And he made them for years. So one thing I do want to pause and talk about for just a minute is Maureen Dowd of the New York Times. Okay. So she said a lot of really awful things about Monica Lewinsky, including that she's too tubby to be in the high school in crowd. But she won a Pulitzer Prize for, quote, her fresh and insightful comments on the impact of President Clinton's affair with Monica Lewinsky. But really what she spent a lot of time talking about in her articles was Monica Lewinsky and not Bill Clinton. She called her ditzy. She called her a predatory White House intern. Predatory intern. Yes. Predatory. Okay. She insisted... I don't even know how you can be a predatory. That's like saying you're a predatory prey. Like it doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. She insisted Lewinsky might have lied under oath for a job at Revlon and was immune from having a brain. Maureen Dowd accused her of taking down a powerful man by dispensing her cleavage. Oh, oh my gosh. So her cleavage is so powerful. That it took down the leader of the free world? Which, by the way, is also insulting to men to insinuate that they don't have the power to make decisions when they see boobs. Right. She said that Monica Lewinsky should try the, quote, troubled slut defense. She said White House aides note that her friends say Monica arrived in Washington like a heat-seeking missile to seduce the president. Right. Does anybody think that a person who is 22 years old, takes a job as an intern in the White House with the sole purpose of seducing the president. Like, that No, that doesn't even, even make sense. Seem like it would be possible. And also, I mean, he has some agency here, right? Exactly. So Maureen Dowd, a female columnist for the New York Times, wrote all of these stories. And of course, she did write other stories. And she did report on the the mis- political aftermath the, and all of those yeah. things. She but she said all of those things about Monica Lewinsky in the nineties. She contributed heavily mm-hmm. to the idea that Monica Lewinsky was too sexy, but not attractive enough. And then she won a Pulitzer Prize for her coverage of the scandal. That's what the nineties were like. Right. It's so infuriating. Well, I mean, Barbara Walters, to Monica Lewinsky's face, said, the whole country felt you were a stalker and a seductress. Right. The whole country felt that way. Betty Friedan called her some little twerp. And so here's part of what's happening. Bill Clinton was a very progressive president Mm. to a lot of people in the 90s. From our perspective, not really. Right. He was more progressive than those that had come before him. He's a starting point. Right. And so people see, especially coming out of the Reagan and Bush years. Yes. People see that he has a lot of political power. Yeah, he was very popular. And that most of his political values align with their own. Right. And so people object to him being taken down. Right. And a lot of what happened politically was political right exactly it wasn't that people were that upset that the president had an affair or that the president misused his office to have an affair if people really cared about that i think we would be responding differently now well okay the guy that led impeachment was cheating on his second wife with his about to be third wife during the impeachment so let's just lay this out. This was not about right. moral value. Right. This was a political strategy. Right. And so on both sides, people responded politically. His political rivals responded with this moral indignation and outrage. How could you sully the office of the right. presidency? How could you do all of these things? How could you not be fully honest? But his political allies saw what was happening, knew that he was their path to getting certain policies or laws enacted. And also some of them were also having affairs. And so 
on both political sides, yes. the easiest target was Monica Lewinsky. And I'll say the secondary target was Hillary Clinton. Yes. Because she's going to come out of this pretty banged up, too. And when she ran for president in 2016, people would say, if she couldn't keep her own husband happy, how can she keep the, the, the country happy? Well, the thing is, if she would have left him, we would have criticized her for that because she broke up a marriage. Right. But if she stays, she's condoning the behavior. Mm-hmm. So I think both of the women in this case come out much, much more damaged than oh, Bill Clinton did. Absolutely. Much more damaged. Not that there's not a political cost of being impeached. Of course there is. But he still got to keep his job. And he still has social and political capital now. Yes. Now. Uh, In that Barbara Walters interview, she asked Monica Lewinsky, where was your self-respect? Where was your self-esteem? Walters can be a real piece of work sometimes. (laughs) And since... This happened. Monica Lewinsky has spent a lot of time trying to build her life Mm -hmm. independent of this scandal. And it's only very, very recently that the narrative about Monica Lewinsky has started to change. Right. And even I mean, what's what's interesting is that people will make a joke about her. Yes. But if you very gently interrogate them for just a few minutes and say, Do you remember that she was just 22? Do you remember that she was his intern and that he was the president Mm -hmm. and that she thought she was in love with him? And she was subjected to all of this media scrutiny. If you ask somebody just a few questions, they will kind of change their perception because we have a 90s perception. Right. If we can just interrogate people a little bit. Mm hmm. They will look at it with the 2019 perception and hopefully a lot of times we'll be like, you're right. That is kind of messed up what we did to that woman. So a few years ago, 2015, I think. Yeah. She started speaking about this and kind of giving her side of the story. And I think one of the most famous places that you can find this if you're interested is her TED talk, Mm -hmm. which I do recommend. It's pretty good. And... She talks about the idea of public shaming Mm -hmm. and how she was sort of held up as like what not to do. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really, really important point that she makes. And she also talks about how she's grateful for, even though she had to go through this, she went through it. Well, yes, we had the Internet, but before social media and just how much worse that is today for public shaming. Yeah. So I think that's a really important point that she's trying to make about what she went through. No, okay, so did she make mistakes? Yeah. Obviously. Did she make some poor choices? Probably. Did she make mistakes that much worse than most 22-year-olds? Exactly. And then the other thing is, are you not allowed to move on from that? She's in her 40s now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I hope that in my 40s I'm not defined by everything in my 20s. That I would, hope. That would be pretty bad. I also want to say I greatly admire her ability to poke fun at herself. Oh, yeah. Her, so she is. I put some of her really good tweets in here so you can read them. She's very, very funny on Twitter. I'll start by saying that her name on Twitter uh, was, is or was Monica Chunky Slut Stalker, that woman Lewinsky. I think it was. I think she's changed it. And. Oh, and I love her, like her bio. Yeah. So human, anti-bullying, activist, speaker, blah, 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 blah. Last thing, beret model. Former beret model. Former beret yeah. model. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So uh, somebody said, what's the worst career advice you've ever received? And she replied, an internship at the White House will be amazing on your resume. And then a little bit later, Marco Rubio was blaming an intern at Politico for something. And she said, blaming the intern is so 1990s. It's good. It's good jokes. I mean, she's really funny, and she's has an ability to laugh at herself mm-hmm. that I don't know that I would have. I, I, mean, don't, that, I don't know either. I think that takes some real strength and some resiliency, and I admire it. I don't ever want to be in her position, and, and the, but I admire it. And the importance here is that if we can change the way we think and talk about Monica Lewinsky, 
and Anita Hill, we can change the way we think and talk about women who endure sexual harassment in the workplace. Yes. Right now. Yes. And we have to stop thinking about women as being too hot or too cold. We have to stop thinking about women as asking for it or not being able to take a joke. All of those narratives are still present. Oh, yeah. Although less and less dominant as we go. Depending on the industry, less and less dominant. Sure. I mean, I think there are still some industries that are pretty rampant with this stuff. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk to you about Marsha Clark. Okay, I know a little bit about Marsha Clark, but I don't know a whole lot. Can I tell you what I knew before doing any research? Yeah. I knew she was a lawyer. Mm -hmm. I knew she was involved in the O.J. Simpson case. Mm -hmm. And my kind of go-to image of her is that she had a really, really bad perm. That's all I knew. Yeah, that's what most people know. Uh, So she was the lead prosecutor during the O.J. Simpson trial. And of course, during the trial, because of Court TV and the 24-hour news cycle, Marsha Clark became temporarily one of the most famous women in America, possibly the world. This was one of our first... I don't want to call it 24 hours, but... So this was one of the first times... So Court TV... Started in the 90s, but this was one of the first major trials where the entire thing was televised. Right. And you could, like, tune in at any you point in time. watch the entire thing. Okay. And 20 years later, Marsha Clark is still constantly asked... About this one case. About what she describes as a horrific personal nightmare. Wow. The other thing I want to say is as soon as the O.J. Simpson trial was over, she quit being a lawyer. Yes, I remember that. Which is crazy because this is the one we remember her for. Mm -hmm. And she lost. Mm -hmm. But her record before that was pretty awesome. 19 out of 20 convictions. I mean, that's pretty good. Yep. That's almost perfect. Mm -hmm. But not good enough. I mean, she... Get, she gave very powerful arguments. She was known to other attorneys in Los Angeles as being very tough. She was known for giving closing arguments on a murder case while she was like eight months pregnant. Wow. And she prosecuted other kind of famous or well-known defendants. Okay. And somebody once said about her, During a different trial, this is the single best courtroom prosecutor I have ever seen in my life. High praise. And what do we say about powerful women? Um, Which one that we say? Because we say a few things. Well, she was a bitch. Yeah. Yeah. We also say they're bad moms. Uh, We also say they're ball busters. (laughs) We go on. Pick a a choice. She was all of those things. Yes. So uh, a mock jury described her as shifty, strident, and a bitch and categorized the defense attorney as smart shifty that's an interesting choice of words i mean aren't lawyers supposed to be kind of shifty like but i mean i i would think i would say shifty more for the defense than the prosecutor i mean the prosecutor is supposed to be representing the state yeah but what i mean it's just an interesting choice of word to me some of her colleagues called her lawyerette is it the 1800s what is happening yeah, I mean, she, but she was able to match them, Ugh. obviously, in the courtroom with a record like her. She drank scotch. She smoked cigarettes. I mean, and mm. she worked very hard. In 1995, the same year as the O.J. Simpson verdict, yes. a book came out called Beyond the Double Bind. Okay. And that book was written by Kathleen Hall Jamieson. In that book, the double bind that women face is defined as this. Women who are considered feminine will be judged incompetent. Okay. And women who are competent, unfeminine. Got it. And so you can't be both. And lots of people, sociologists, psychologists, study this kind of phenomenon and say that women are penalized when they attempt to exhibit both warmth and competence at the same time. Because it's like those two competing cultural notions for us. Right. Cancel each other out. Got it. So she's called ruthless, bossy, strident, snippy, chippy, dour, hard as nails, flint hard, a targer. A targer? (laughs) 
a tiger, a miserable wretch, and chief bitch. Whoa, okay. Yes. During jury selection in the fall of 1994, people started talking about her daring skirts, which were deemed too short and too tight. And if you look at pictures of them... Yeah, I don't remember that. They were not. Throughout the trial, her colleagues anonymously talked about her shapely legs in the press. Oh my gosh. She was sometimes called Marsha Mini. I don't get that one. Like a mini skirt? Oh, got it. And tr- I was thinking Minnie Mouse, sorry. Tri- <laughs> I have a four-year-old. Trial, like people who watched the trial, um, they had daily skirt alerts to analyze how much leg she was showing. I completely do not remember this. After a prospective juror told her that her skirts were too short, Judge Ito said, I wondered when someone was going to mention that. Lots of people condemned her for wearing, quote unquote, sexy clothes, saying that she was trying to sway the court to get her verdict. I'm just I'm doing a Google image search. A tabloid reported because unless she's in a showgirl outfit, I'm just not buying it. A tabloid reported that one of OJ's lawyers privately expressed some concern that she would use seduction to sway male jurors. And she was also called the pinup of the OJ Simpson trial and prosecuti. Oh, that's bad. Her facial expressions were studied and critiqued mercilessly. Like people said, she looked inflamed today. She looked sad today. Her hair, which is one thing that you remember about her, also on trial. She had, quote, more than her share of bad hair days. Her perm was nicknamed Poodle Do. Imagine changing your hair. And having it be a front page news story. You are a competent, trained, powerful attorney. And nobody's focusing on your skills. Very effectively arguing in a murder trial. And this story is about your hair. When I'm looking at these pictures. And she's just in suits normal clothing i know i don't understand what there is nothing to understand stop trying to think about it it's just it's i don't get it also there also her collars are up to her neck she's covered like a puritan lots of marcia clark halloween costumes in the 94 95 yes so ty west coordinated the oj simpson trial coverage for dateline nbc and he told Allison Yarrow, with Marsha, it was her appearance. What was her hair today? What was she wearing? That kind of thing. It was six paragraphs on Marsha, displayed at checkout with a photo. Not a lot of in-depth stuff going on. Somebody found a topless photo of her Whoa. taken during a European vacation years before the trial. So, of course, that's fair game because she's on trial. Published it in a tabloid. Her ex-mother-in-law. Always a good source for information. Sold the topless photo of her. Oh, no. That's horrible. Jury consultants suggested that she dress, dress softer, speak more softly, don't be strident, try to soften up, be more palatable. Marsha Clark said... I'm sorry, did she murder somebody? Yeah. Marsha Clark said, so they're going to talk about my hair and my skirts. Whatever. I don't have time for this. The clothing was nothing really, but I did wear longer skirts. I did pastelize myself. I went along with it because I didn't care. It wasn't that important to me. I'm not trying to make any statement with my clothes. So if my clothes are getting in the way, then let's just take that off the table. That was the least of my problems. Right. I had bigger fish to fry. And she used this word pastelize to say like she started dressing herself like a girl going to church yeah. on Easter. Well, people talked about Johnny Cochran's courtroom performance and her courtroom appearance pretty much every day. Right. When she came in with straight hair, lots of people had commentary about that. Yes, I do remember that. Uh, And that's when she got called the prosecutee. And 
it was said in the newspapers that she had a sexy new look. It was softer and more feminine. I mean, I will say I think it looks better, but that's just a personal opinion. She, she can do whatever she wants to do. She started wearing concealer because she had bags under her eyes because she's a working mom prosecuting O.J. Simpson. In front of millions of people all day. And maybe that's stressful. reported that she had a makeover. Oh, my gosh. And somebody said she needed a makeover of her makeover. Oh. Like, this is endless. Oh. The San Francisco Chronicle polled women trial lawyers on what they thought of Clark's makeover, not on what they thought of her strategy as a prosecutor. Mm -hmm. And those women trial lawyers were not kind. Of course not. They were troubled because they felt that she was cheating to get to the top. She should have. So wait, wait, wait. She she should have uh, been able to succeed without a cosmetic makeover. And the headline was. Marsha Clark's new look irks female lawyers. So her makeover, we said, was bad. Like, we didn't like it. But then she used a bad makeover to cheat? I don't know. There's no logic or reason here. Everything she did was wrong. Just think about that. Okay? Just blanket statement. It's all wrong. (laughs) Oh, my God. I, I knew she had it bad. I didn't know it was this bad. She was off. She was more likely to be interrupted by the judge, of course. And uh, when she responded to that, it was referred to as her histrionics. Well, she's lucky her uterus didn't fall out. The judge would address the lawyers, Mr. Cochran, Mr. Shapiro, Mr. Darden, and Marsha. The Los Angeles chapter of the National Organization for Women said that Judge Ito was taking Marcia Clark less seriously than other attorneys in a formal letter. But that's pretty much all that happened. Wow. They just shredded her credibility. Everything became about her appearance and her sexuality and her hair and her makeup and her facial expressions. She's too harsh but when she softened her image, she's cheating. Then she's trying to flirt. Oh my gosh. Uh. And it was an effort to discredit her as incompetent or unfeminine. And the other thing that happened was she was a mom, a, a divorce mom. And so, with apparently a, a peach of a mother in law, she had custody issues. With her children during the O.J. Simpson trial, primarily her ex-husband alleged that she was an unfit parent because she was spending so much time at work. And so she was doing all of that while prosecuting, I mean, the most famous murder trial in decades. And so she often had to ask for changes in schedule to make allowances for her childcare. And all of that was ridiculed and subject to public scrutiny. I mean, that's a very personal situation and it was made very public because of judge Ito's decision to make everything that happened in the trial public. Yeah. And I'm reading here. It said that her divorce was filed four days before she joined the O.J. Simpson case. Yes. So that's just the worst timing yes. possible. And her kids are pretty little, three and five. I thought they were a little bit older than that, but mm-hmm. I guess I just misremembered. So she was treated that way. She quit as soon as the trial was over. She got kind of a second career. She's a novelist now. She wrote one nonfiction book about the O.J. Simpson trial. Mm-hmm. And then the, uh, all of her other books are fiction. But based on her experiences with the law and legal investigations. And when the FX series came out, do you remember that? A couple years ago, maybe? Yeah. Sarah Paulson yes. played Marsha Clark in that TV show. When that happened... Lots of people brought Marsha Clark onto their talk shows and gave her interviews. And oh, wait, and listen to her side. All of a sudden, what? because women it, are people, because it was in American Crime Story. Now people were willing to discuss mm. for literally the first time the misogyny that she experienced. And a lot of people said we didn't notice it when it was happening, but it's very clear now. And so now she's kind of. 
people are deciding that she's maybe a feminist icon. And so this is a quote from Marsha Clark, and I think it's just a great way to end this conversation about misunderstood women from the 90s. She said, women in the 90s doing a man's job had to be tough. And if you call sexism, you're a lame excuse for a whiner. It's all about your weakness. You can't take it. Mm -hmm. So I never complained. I'm glad that we are revisiting these stories. Yeah. And I will say that 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 FX show did a great job of, I mean... It was just a person. It was just balanced. It wasn't like they overemphasized it. It was just an accurate, balanced portrayal of what it was like for her. I think even if we don't make all of these women into quote unquote feminist icons. Right. I mean, Tana Harding is not a feminist icon. No, but she is a complex and nuanced person. And that deserves to be remembered, too. Mm -hmm. I think. Marsha Clark, maybe the close we get here, maybe Anita Hill to being a feminist icon. Oh, yeah. Both of them, I would say. But, I mean, even there, I could understand where some people might say, well, you know, that's not the icon I want to look up to. Fine, whatever. But it's still putting that story back together in a way that mm-hmm. makes more sense. Mm-hmm. I and, just, if, and if Tanya Harding is a person you want to look up to, good for you, too. Well, yeah. And there's, I mean, there's things to admire in her story. And that's the whole point, right? There's things to admire about all of these women, regardless of whether... Uh, we think their decisions were all good or all bad because, again, they're human people, right? Right. So Anna Nicole Smith was in Playboy, but she was also a person who cared a lot about her family and her children and other people and animals. Right. And so... And she also was a role model for people who didn't have a certain body image of themselves. Right. So to simplify and say you're either bad or you're good... Right. That's problematic. Exactly. Yes. I'm sure. So we'll, now, if we can only do this for women today, yeah, treat them as complex and well, nuanced. I mean, I guess if we're still doing the podcast in 20 years, we can talk about misremembered women of the 2010s. Because my gosh, I'm sure we'll have a few. <laughs> we're. I mean, it's just it's all the same. Yeah, just pick up the script and insert a new name. Yeah. So, Missy, what's next in your lady life? So next in my lady life, I am going on a Phi Theta Kappa trip with students. We're going to beautiful Sherman, Texas. I went to college in Sherman, Texas. I I don't know what we're going to do. i got to be there for three days. I told you not to travel with students. <laughs> Whew, Sherman. It's going to be good times. I have at no, the Holiday Inn. I have no... Whoa. Sherman's moving up in the world. We did <laughs> not have a Holiday Inn when I went to college there. What's next in your lady life? You know, Ann Patchett, who's one of my favorite authors, just had a new book come out called The Dutch House. Oh, I think I saw a Twitter exchange about this between you and your mom. Yeah. So, I'm reading that book. <laughs> it's a good book. If you get another tattoo, is your mom going to be mad? She's over it now. I have this giant tattoo. So, so there's nothing else that you, you could do. When you, when you get to 10, your mom just gives up, I guess. When rule. you've disappointed her so much, so there's many no times. floor. She just gives up. Thank you for listening to this episode of Profess Hers, our podcast about seeing movies, culture, and history through our lady eyes. I'm Misty, and I think the thing I miss most about the 90s is getting to wear my flannels. And I'm Allegra. The thing I miss most from the 90s is Surge. Do you remember Surge? The soda? I vaguely remember that. I drink that all the time in high school. We'd love to hear from you what you thought about today's episode, what you'd like us to discuss in future episodes, or how great you think we are. To connect with us, you can follow us on Twitter at ProfessHers, P-R-O-F-E-S-S-H-E-R-S, or by email, same address, ProfessHers at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you to everyone who has been listening, commenting, liking, and reviewing our podcast. Please keep doing all of those things, and we hope you recommend our podcast to a friend. And remember, women are people. I'm not sure how many times we have to tell you, but it's true. Maybe you'll believe us. That's all I got. Women are people, man. That's a really hard concept. It's so hard. We believe in you. You can get it. <laughs>